Hello, I'm Paul Harvey Jr., and welcome to the Rest of the Story podcast. We have three episodes for you today, so let's get started. Now, the rest of the story. In the summer of 1609, Jamestown Colony was struggling for survival, and so from Plymouth, England, was dispatched a fleet of ships to the rescue. They bore supplies and additional colonists, nine vessels in all. The flagship of the fleet was the Sea Venture. A transatlantic voyage took many weeks in those times, and for many weeks all was quiet. But then, one Monday late in July, a hurricane struck. The fleet which had been sailing in tight formation was suddenly widely scattered. Now the magnificent flagship Sea Venture was alone in a swirling ocean cauldron, cowering beneath a glowering sky aboard the... Sea Venture was Colonial Secretary-elect William Strachey. It is his descriptions of the days that followed that comprise one of the most vivid and one of the most terrifying accounts in all maritime history. Strachey called it a hell of darkness that descended upon them. He told of the relentless roaring winds that stirred the seas and pounded their vessel. He related that over the next 24 hours, nobody could imagine the weather becoming more violent, and yet it continued to become more violent. The mountainous waves seemed to swell above the clouds, he said. The rain seemed more a river flooding the air. There was not a moment in which the sudden splitting of a ship was not expected, he recorded. And by Friday morning, the fifth day of windy, watery hell, all had abandoned hope and prepared to perish. And it was then that the cry of someone on the sea venture was heard above the howling wind, the voice of Sir George Summers, the admiral of the fleet, and the word he shouted that shattered the darkness was, Land! As best he could, Summers guided the sea venture straight toward the eerie silhouette in the distance. Before reaching shore, they struck a reef. The passengers and crew prayed the vessel would hold. She did. For the rest of the day, dinghies ferried people and provisions over the mile of water from the reef to the mainland. And then fear swept through the company anew, for one by one the adventurers of the sea venture began to realize the land Admiral Summers had sighted was not America, but rather it was the notorious Devil's Island, more feared, more carefully avoided by ocean voyagers than any other corner of the globe. Only demons lived there, it was said. Their shrieks had been heard repeatedly by passing ships, and yet for now the sea venturers were safe, and safe they would remain. From the wreck of their ship, they built two smaller vessels which eventually carried them to Jamestown. And when William Strachey's written hurricane account reached England, it was written by another William, named Shakespeare, who was thus inspired to write a now famous play called The Tempest, and the Devil's Islands, which had provided a haven for the windswept seafarers. It was quickly discovered that no devils dwelled there. The cries heard by seamen in days gone by had been the squealing of wild boars. And thus was civilized the little island chain sleeping a thousand-plus miles from the Florida coast, a tiny speck in mid-Atlantic, a welcome needle in a hellish haystack, a place now something of a paradise. Bermuda? Bermuda! Now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. Her name was Gabrielle, and, and she carried a certain secret to her grave. 
She was born August 19, 1883, in what used to be called a poor house in France. She was also what used to be called an illegitimate child, but that was not Gabrielle's secret. She was reared in an orphanage. As a young woman, she attempted a career as a cafe singer, and after enduring a succession of unimpressed audiences, she settled for being the, the second-string mistress of a wealthy man. But that wasn't her secret either. Gabrielle began making hats in 1913. She'd had a number of lovers by then, and one of them set her up in the hat business. And over the next quarter century, her little millinery enterprise flourished. As a result of her newfound prestige, Gabrielle became acquainted with many important people, among them Sir Winston Churchill. Then war broke out, and France was seized by the Nazis. We have no absolute evidence of Gabrielle's political inclinations during this time. She just wanted the war to end at any cost, she said. And Churchill was essential to that objective, she believed. Say, what if Gabrielle spoke to him, maybe convinced him that making peace with the Germans was the right thing to do? Why, she might go down in history as a peacemaker herself, a great humanitarian, even a heroine. Now, I must quickly add that Gabrielle's lover for the moment was a German baron who had been sent to Paris by Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop. And it was through that baron that Gabrielle gained access to Nazi officialdom, to whom in turn she confided her bold scheme. She would directly, personally meet with Winston Churchill and tell him of her peace plan Incredible as it sounded, she did know Churchill, as you've learned. And remarkably, Gabrielle's idea was brought to the attention of the SS Reichsfuhrer himself, the Heinrich Himmler. And perhaps even more remarkably, the Central Security Office issued the necessary travel orders. Gabrielle's secret mission was even given a code name, Operation Hat. She would journey incognito to Madrid, which was then a stronghold of German espionage. From there, she'd proceed to England, where she would try to persuade Churchill to engage in secret peace talks with the Nazis. But Madrid is as far as Gabrielle got. You see, at that very time, Prime Minister Churchill fell ill and was forbidden to see anyone as he was convalescing. So, Operation Hat had failed before it had even begun. And one day the war ended. And from that moment on, Gabrielle lived in constant fear. Because imagine, if it ever got out that she'd once volunteered to represent the Nazi government in a private meeting with Winston Churchill, well, surely her now prestigious business enterprise would suffer and, and could die. But Gabrielle died first. So, now it can be told that the successful young hat maker financed by a lover the designer of clothing and jewelry who revolutionized women's styles, the businesswoman trendsetter who bridged the fashion gap between the 19th and 20th centuries. Why, she was practically a Nazi spy. Gabrielle Coco Chanel. Only now you know the rest of the story. The summer of 1793 was the driest and the hottest that folks in Philadelphia ever remembered. Streams were stagnant pools and flies and mosquitoes swarmed, the dirty river stank unbearably, and the hush of houses where children were sick filled the foul streets with a torrent of silence. 
August 19, a doctor diagnosed it as bilious remittent yellow fever. That was the beginning, and before it was over, the city of Philadelphia endured an agony like none that ever befell any American city before or since. For 100 days and nights of horror, 55,000 citizens cringed behind drawn curtains, weeping and praying, not daring to venture forth. Our greatest seaport was paralyzed, and our government, because in 1793, Philadelphia, of course, was the capital of the United States. Now, this was not the first siege of yellow fever for Philadelphia. Every 70 years, the plague had returned, and each time more dreadful than the last. Where other sieges of the disease had killed maybe five a day, this time people were dying at the rate of 17 a day, and then 20, and then 40. Three out of every four afflicted died, usually within a week. Outside the town of Gray's Ferry, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson lived. Everybody who could was fleeing the town. Jefferson wrote to James Madison that he feared panic would add famine to the disease. The College of Physicians said that explosions might drive the plague away, so the governor ordered cannon discharged in the city streets all day, August 30. And others carried muskets, firing them at intervals. Anybody wearing a mourning band was avoided. Handshaking was abandoned, but nothing did any good. More people died, and the air hummed with mosquitoes. But we didn't know then about mosquitoes because this was 100 years before Walter Reed and his victory. So the mosquitoes went unmolested while more bred in the stagnant pools and men fired more cannons and more people died. Doctors standing midway between medieval and modern medicine had more courage than knowledge. Finally, in despair, they turned to purges and tonics and bloodletting, which were at best worthless and at worst fatal. October 11, one day, 119 died. This is a town of 55,000 people now. Imagine Kalamazoo losing 100 lives a day. Gravediggers worked around the clock. No mourners dared come near. Wives fled husbands. Parents from children, children from parents. An exciting southern belle named Dolly Payne watched her father-in-law die, and then her mother, and then her husband died in her arms. Dolly almost died, but she lived to marry again a year later and go down in history as Dolly Madison. Ships lay at the docks, unloaded. All schools closed. Nobody to clean the filthy streets. Mid-September, there was no food. People were starving. No mail delivery. Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, was stricken. The federal government evaporated. Clerks refused to remain at their desks. The new federal city on the Potomac was being built. The Washington family remained in Virginia, away from the yellow fever. But the president had nobody to advise him. In September, more than 1,400 Philadelphians died. Then it was autumn. And the frosts came, and the mosquitoes died, and the plague began to taper off. Not all at once, but gradually the death rate went down. The only thing is, nobody was bothering to keep count anymore. For a long while, nobody realized that the disease was diminishing. But the city refused to return to life. Citizens had seen their loved ones perish in such numbers that a kindness of nature had dulled their senses to the cruel pain, leaving them too numbed to pick up their own lives again. Traffic remained paralyzed, houses shuttered, the waterfront deathly still. It was going to take some shock. It was going to take some, some startling thing to jolt the city awake again. If only the government would come back and reopen for business, instill some confidence in the people. But the scattered government was now mostly at Germantown, planning for Congress to meet there. And this left the stricken city of Philadelphia just barely alive and abandoned for dead. And then one man, one man recognizing the need, elected himself to revive the city. And on the morning of November 11, there's a, there's a, there's a distant clatter of horses' hoofs 
In the silent stone streets of Philadelphia, cowed fugitives from fear began to peer behind their drawn shades or open the door just a crack to see. And down there at the end of the street, a tall man on a great white horse is riding alone down the street, right down the middle of the street, bowing slightly toward any sign of life that he sees in the houses as he passes, and suddenly there is a stirring. There is a, a babble of voices, and then from somewhere a shout goes out, and windows are thrown up, and shutters are banged open. From outside the town behind this lone horseman, refugees begin returning on foot. The gaunt gray or yellowed faces of those who had stayed behind came awake again. A whole city revived, returned to life behind the example of this tall man with a ruddy face and a fringe of once red hair. It was he they had followed before and would once more. Moving alone through the streets of silent death, George Washington brought the city back to life again. And now you know the rest of the story. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to sharing more episodes with you in the future.